Uh, okay, let me uh, let me tell you where we are here on this. You have two sets of handouts. One says the one of them. I think it starts with the first page. It says the signs of Christ's coming, and you'll notice that we have nine parts, and then we end up with the part ten, it's judgment of the nations. My task is to get through all ten parts between now and Sunday morning. Uh, we'll see how that goes. So um, after that is not something that's necessarily pertinent to the study other than the Olivet Discourse, which is what we're studying this time, is primarily found in Matthew 24 and 25. It's also found in Mark 13, and uh, it's, it's also in a portion of Luke in chapter 21. So um, the, the three different gospels, well, they're not different, but... How they compare is given to you in three columns. As part, I'm not going to be referring to that that much, but uh, just so that you'll know what that's about. The other one is is a copy of all of the slides that we're going to look at while we're here. Now I can tell you why I put three. You know, I could have put one to a sheet. It'd been a lot bigger, and you could read it. I never know how these things are going to come out until after I go look at them after I've printed them out. Um, so obviously it's very difficult to read the Greek text um, and somewhat difficult to read the uh, English translation there. But it, the reason I have three per, if anybody's ever filled around a PowerPoint, you'll know that if you, if you print out three, three slides per page, it gives you the lines out there where you can make notes. Uh, so I don't know how brilliant that was. It either was or it wasn't. Um, if I made a mistake, and I'm not real sure, it's 50-50 whether or not I made a mistake on that. But if it was if it was a mistake, it was my sixth mistake of the year. <clears throat> I keep up with them. Uh, but maybe it wasn't. Or my fifth and a half, five and a half mistakes. How's that? Now, let me say something about the English translation here that I'm very happy to talk about. I have, let's see, I have bade farewell to what previously was my favorite translation, which was the New American Standard, NASB. But the Lockman Foundation, which controls that, in the last several years has worked with a lot of, now, the Lockman Foundation goes for a strictly literal interpretation. They don't float along an idea or they don't put a word in there that they think should. They don't do that. It is strictly, it is strictly exact. It's literal. <clears throat> but I've, I've been studying this for a while and I believe I have replaced it with, with its own replacement, which is presented by those who are in the Lotman Foundation, uh, a group of of uh, scholars, translators who have worked together in both Old and New Testaments, whose works I have always trusted. And what I'm more or less introducing this time is what I've decided to do with this particular study is I'm going to go along with this new translation which you may, uh, with which you may be aware, and it is the Legacy Bible. Um. On your, if you have an iPhone 
or an iPad, you can get a free app to it. And the free app also comes with an interlinear and with a strong, in other words, the words are listed just like you're reading the Bible and what the Greek text is in the interlinear is right there with it. But also in the Strong's part, right below every word is the Strong's concordance of, of the definition of the root word, okay? So all that's free. It's a free app for your iPhone or iPad. I think, I think if you just put Legacy Bible or Legacy Standard Bible or something like that. Now, I have an iMac in my office and um, I can't get that app on that thing. But, and I have forgot, I'd have to look, I don't, I don't have that with me, but there is a free online Bible, Legacy Bible, it's free. You go to the website, you have, I think you have to get a username and password, doesn't cost you a thing. And so you're into the Legacy Bible just like you are with the app. Now that's for you to use, that information is for you to use any way that you want to. But I'll tell you a little bit of difference up until my biggest gripe against the NASB was that there were a few places that they were not literal. One of the, one of the major problems that I had was, I'll give you an example, in the book of the Revelation. The measuring, for example, the measuring of the city of the New Jerusalem, the measuring of it. 12,000 stadia. Well, instead of saying 12,000 stadia, the, new, the NASB puts something like 1,380 miles or something. Well, that's not how it reads. Uh, and it reads cubits instead of yards. They had yards for the width of the, the Jasper Wall. And then that's just not right to me. And that was the biggest gripe that I had. But the legacy uses the original. They'll say 12,000 stadia. They don't, they don't change it into, into how we look at things here. The other thing is when, um, for example, I'll just pull this out of the air here. And you might read in the NASB, and Jesus answered them, quotation marks, you brood of vipers. All right. The legacy puts it this way. Jesus answered them saying, you brood of vipers. In the original Greek text, indeed, the verb saying is there. And I don't know why NASB left that out. They just thought it was better English, I guess. Um, but that's how much more literal, at least to this point, as I've studied the legacy and compared it with the Greek text, uh, that's how much more literal. And I think it, that's why I've been using my own stuff on, on there every week because I think it ought to be strictly literal. You don't play with it. It is what it is. You don't, you don't think, well, I think it might be better. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. So I'm a real stickler about that. But I'll tell you, I've, to this point, I've really fallen in love with the Legacy Bible. Um, I'm still studying it and so forth, but it appears to me that it, it, it has become more or less the replacement of the NASB. And it's a good, it's, to me so far, it's a, it's a good, uh, a, an excellent translation of uh, the scriptures. And the fact, that it, the fact that it's offered free 
you don't pay anything for it now. I guess if you went and bought a leather bound, you might have to pay. You might have to pay for that. I don't know. Um, but everything online is free with the Legacy Bible, and and the people of the Lockman Foundation were directly involved in this whole thing. So what we're looking at on my slides this time, I still have the Greek with its with its literal English out beside it. But then right below that, I have the LSV, the, the Legacy Standard Translation. And I really, really like it so far. Okay, now, we're in Matthew 24 and 25 primarily. We may allude to something out of Mark 13 or even out of John if it if it significantly adds to the overall discourse of, of the Olivet Discourse. I believe Christ gave four discourses in the process of his three years. Of course, he did a lot of teaching, a lot of healing. But when I say a discourse, I'm speaking of a major sermon. One of those was the Sermon on the Mount. Another was the kingdoms, the, the, the parables of the kingdom. Those are both in Matthew. One out of John, which was the upper room discourse. And the other, of course, is the Olivet discourse, which is here. It's an interesting uh, teaching that Christ gives just to his circle of disciples so let's uh, let's get into it but let me lay a little foundation here that helps us to understand what we're really looking at here so a lot of people get this a lot a lot of people take some of these texts out of the general context and they get the whole thing confused and that's a bad that's a bad habit so we're going to try to put ourselves in the place of the disciples in the last days of the life of Jesus. This was like on uh, in the middle of the week and on Friday he's crucified. Um, so we we think of it, we can see it in their writing. Now we're focusing on the contemporary age of Jesus, the time when Jesus lived on planet Earth, Jesus of Nazareth. We have quite a bit of um, background information from the Jews themselves that speak of, of, of the data available for, for, for their particular historical era. So we're thinking here of the time of Christ. Now there, there is a uh, string of clues in the Old Testament that give to us a great deal of information about the Messiah. Characteristics, his lineage, Judah and then David, um, what his ministry would be like, how he would be both a suffering servant and a victorious king, um, where he was born, and when he would be born, the, the when is found in Daniel. So naturally, in the general time frame of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, 
thoughtful Bible students, Jews who were very studious and, and, and uh, religious Jews, rabbis, they were, they were students of when can we see the Messiah. He was the answer to everything. Now, the Jews were no different than thoughtful, studious Christians today. They wanted to know what the future held and how much more future are we going to have to endure. If you read the writings, and they are extra-biblical, pseudepigraphical, whatever you want to call them, they are extra-biblical writings that came forth from the Jews. They are not Scripture, but they reflect the thought processes of the Jews regarding the end of the age and the coming of the Messiah in the time of Jesus. It, it tells you how they were thinking and uh, what they were studying as, as Jewish people with regard to the end of the age. We're going to talk about that a little bit here so that having laid that foundation, we can better understand the discourse uh, itself. Naturally, the centerpiece of the study of the future, eschatology, end-time things, for the Jew and for us, focuses, focused on Messiah, the Christ. Quite a bit by the time Malachi has finished and the Old Testament is completed, there was quite a bit of material in the Old Testament to give us a fairly good description of the Messiah, the Christ. Of course, the psalmist gives so many uh, descriptions that are one. You put this together with the prophets and, and you just put it all together and you have a pretty good portrait of uh, the characteristics of the Messiah uh, the power of the Messiah, and so forth. So they longed for the coming of the Messiah because they know he's going to make everything right when he comes. They were an oppressed people with a glorious promise. They were always, their necks were always under the heels of kingdoms, Gentile powers. Um, especially since the time of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But they knew that being oppressed people, they were also a noble people with a, with a wonderful history and great promises from God. And so it was, their, it was their faith that told them that Messiah would deliver them. He would overthrow their oppressors. He would settle all issues. Uh, he would take care of everything. He would establish the kingdom that God had promised for Israel and uh, that all of the land would finally be theirs. By the time you come to the lifetime of Jesus, knowing all of the things that had been written in the Old Testament, especially that time frame that is in Daniel, they were they were in they were in great anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. 
the disciples were no different. They read the same stuff that the other <coughs> Jews had read. They listened to the same kinds of things that were said in the synagogue and in circles of believers uh, that everybody else had been listening to in their day. So uh, they knew that the people, the Israel was, the, the Jews were in difficulty. You just think back over their history, the Assyrians divided them, took the 10 tribes away and mixed them in with the nations of the world. Uh, then came the Babylonian uh, slavery, the captivity, when they took away the southern kingdom of Judah because the other kingdom, the other tribes had been taken away. Then there was the Persian rule and the Greek rule and the Roman rule and the oppression. And in the time of Jesus, Rome occupied the land. It, it was Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross. So they were looking for their freedom and for their oppressors to be overthrown by that righteous king, the son of David. And they knew that he would bring the kingdom of God that had been promised them in the Old Testament. And this promise, this, this hope that uh, they carried was hundreds and hundreds of years old. They could read their Old Testament, for example, their own scriptures. And they could see how wonderful their future was going to be under the Messiah. Uh, the kingdom, the power of the Messiah, and, and so forth. Hamashiach speaks of an, an anointed one, just like Christos in the Greek. The anointed one of God. The only one like that in all of, uh, of the history of human Christ, the Messiah, a Christ who would come, he would establish rule, he would overthrow the Gentile powers, he, as the son of David, would reign with the same characteristics that David reigned. Uh, in his time. So they long, obviously they longed for that. And uh, they longed for it uh, so much that their theology, while really good in a lot of ways, became skewed. And that's one thing that Christ uh would correct with his with his teaching, then death, burial, resurrection, establishment of the church, the sending of the Holy Spirit, all these kind of things. Now, they had the promise in Isaiah chapter nine, for example, that uh, there would be one government of the world, and it would be upon the shoulders of uh, the Messiah. He would rule and reign in righteousness. Wonderful counselor he was called. The mighty God, the father of eternity. Uh, Prince of Peace. And it went on and said there will never be an end to the increase of his government. And peace would never know an end. And he would be enthroned on the throne of his father David. And justice and righteousness would be established forever under the rule of this Messiah. Now they had never known that. Remember the world never knew it. A, a kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace. Um, they also looking 
at Isaiah, for example, in chapter 11, uh, they knew that it read, I think it's the first verse, that there would a branch would come out of the root of Jesse, who was the father of David, and another one like unto David, it says, uh, one like David, not David, but one like David, a king like David would reign and bring prosperity and peace. And uh, he would be anointed, verse 2, with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah chapter 23, he would sit on the throne of his father David, rule and reign Israel um, as a flower to be to be, become in full bloom with full glory under the blessing of God. Zechariah chapter 14, uh, Daniel, uh, the prophecies there, uh, knowing all that had been said so that by the time of Jesus of Nazareth, the Jews had a very clear eschatology. They had a clear understanding in their mind of the events of the consummation of the age and the ushering in of the glorious kingdom of Messiah. So basically they had taken the teachings from, for example, Daniel and Zechariah, and then like we've mentioned, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, put it all together, and then with the teaching of Ezekiel, had a, had a good solid picture of the consummation of the age, their eschatology. Now, let me go a step further. Understand this, and I have it here, and I'm going to read, read from some of these old books. And from another man who uh, comprised major portions of these books, he's, he's later, he, he wrote in the time of the church. Some of these books that uh, spoke of the consummation are books of Enoch, the Psalms of Solomon, the Assumption of Moses, the Book of Jubilees, the Ascension of, Asi of Isaiah, the Fourth Book of Ezra, the Apocalypse of Baruch, the Book of the Secrets of Enoch, and uh, the Sibylian, the Sibylian, uh, I'll get it right in a minute, Sibylline Oracles. Now, they were very religious books. I mean, you and I can pick up some religious books and enjoy reading them. But we don't count them, of course, as uh, Scripture because they're not God-written. They're not God-authored. It's just men who are reflecting on what they know with regard to Scripture. And they give their beliefs on these things. Uh, and they reveal what they think. And because it comes so strongly from specific parts of the Old Testament, their writings became popular among the Jews especially in the day of Jesus because it was the time frame when Messiah was supposed to come. Now, there's a guy named uh, Schurer, S-C-H-U-R-E-R. -E he wrote a book entitled The History of the Jewish People in the Time of Christ. And he writes out, uh, I've numbered them here, and I think I, I numbered eight. Let me make sure. Well, let's just say there are eight. If I'm wrong, that'll be the seventh mistake this year. Um, I think I see eight here. Eight, uh, eight, eight things that uh, developed or, or were the centerpieces of 
of the eschatology of the Jews in the time of Jesus. Now we're talking about this because this is what the disciples would have heard before they asked Jesus these questions. So this is already their eschatology. They're thinking about this. And Schurer puts it together like this. Number one, you take those writings and put them together. This was the, these were the beliefs of the Jews regarding their eschatology, their, their doctrine of the end. Uh, number one, um, they believed, now this is according to Schurer, they believed that before Messiah came, there would be a time of terrible tribulation so that even before the Messiah arrives, and they used the terminology, it would be like birth pain. As a woman has birth pain immediately before she gives birth, of course. So they wrote, before the kingdom of Messiah would be established, the nation would suffer tribulation akin to birth pains. So uh, now you get that really by reading 14th chapter of Zechariah. Uh, then there's one of their books called one of those writings that were popular back then, the second book of Baruch. I want to quote from that, from the translation of it. And honor shall be turned into shame and strength humiliated into contempt and beauty shall become ugliness and envy shall rise in those who had not thought aught of themselves and passion shall seize him who is peaceful and many shall be stirred up in anger to injure many others and they shall rouse up armies in order to shed blood and in the end they shall perish together with them. All right. Therefore, as part of their eschatology, they anticipated a breakdown, a, an unprecedented breakdown of morals. Uh, there would be no honor, dignity, no decency. It would all be torn down and torn away. It would be a time in their belief, according to what they read and studied, it would be a time of such warlike attitudes and such lawlessness among people and the moral chaos that would exist in the world, they would think that this is the beginning of, of the birth pain. That's, that's exactly how they wrote in, uh, in their books. Now to go to another book, Fourth Ezra. In that book, Ezra, the, the, the author of the book, tells us what they were thinking. And in his book, he said that there would be earthquakes. People would be tumultuous and chaotic. Nations would be scheming against one another. And there would be confusion of leaders in the world. And the princes of the world would be disquieted in, uh, in their hearts. In other words, Leaders couldn't come together and they were confused and didn't have the answers to the complexities of issues. Now that's in 4th Ezra. Now in the Sibylline Oracles, I'm going to quote from this now. From heaven shall fall fiery swords down to the earth. Light shall come bright and great flashing into the midst of uh, men and the, and the earth. The earth, the universal mother. 
shall shake in these days at the hand of the eternal and the fishes of the sea and the beasts of the earth and the countless tribes of flying things and all the souls of men and every sea shall shudder at the presence of the eternal and there shall be panic and the towering mountain peaks and the hills of the giants shall he rend and the murky abyss shall be visible to all and the high ravines and the lofty mountains shall be full of dead bodies and rocks shall flow with blood and each torrent shall flood the plain and God shall judge all with war and, and the sword and there shall be brimstone from heaven. Yea, stones and rain and hail incessant and grievous and death shall be on the four-footed beasts. Yea, the land itself shall drink of the blood of the perishing and beasts shall eat their fill of flesh. Now you think about this, put it all together. It sounds just like my eschatology. It sounds exactly like what I believe. That's what they were looking for back then. That's what they were believing. Jesus knew this, of course. Now, in seeing that future time of tremendous turmoil, tribulation, if you will, across the world, they wrote in their Mishnah, which is an extra biblical writing, um, moral tra the traditions of the fairy became a book later of the Pharisees. And in that book, they anticipated that, quote, arrogance increases, ambition shoots up, and the vine fields, and the vine yields fruit, yet wine is scarce. The governments turn to heresy. There is no instruction. The synagogue is devoted to lewdness. Galilee is destroyed and the land laid waste. The inhabitants of a district go from city to city without finding compassion. The wisdom of the learned is hated. The godly are despised. Truth is absent. Boys insult old men. Old men stand in the presence of children. The son depreciates the father. The daughter rebels against the mother. The daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are his house fellows, his friends. Now that's out of the Mishnah. That's a translation, but a direct quote of the Mishnah. They anticipated the tribulation. So the teaching prevalent in the time of Jesus of Nazareth in the hearts of Jews who longed to be relieved from oppression is reflected here and literally they anticipated the tribulation that would precede the coming of the Messiah. A time of turmoil around the world, which at last and ultimately would bring the Messiah to establish his great kingdom. Now, that was number one. Number two, the second thing they had in their eschatology was that into this tribulation would come a forerunner, a herald of the Messiah to announce the immediate arrival of the Messiah. And he would be like Elijah. Now, of course, the prophet writes about that in the Old Testament. Now, just like Messiah is not David, but he's like David. So then the forerunner is not Elijah, but he's like Elijah. And as the king himself comes in the spirit and the power of David to be a greater extent of a king, so then the forerunner 
would also come to a greater extent in spirit and power of Elijah. And so they anticipated that one like Elijah would come. And that's why they were so, so powerfully drawn to John the Baptist early in his ministry because he was so much like Elijah. And then, of course, what did he do? He announced the coming of the Messiah, right? You can see where the disciples wrapped their minds around certain things. And let me say this. When Jesus comes to this teaching, he knew that in the minds of the disciples and in, the, in a greater sense, in the minds of well-meaning Jews, there was no such thing to them. There was no concept of a second coming of Messiah. It was just the coming of Messiah. All right. Now, number three, the next thing they saw was the coming of Messiah personally and visibly. So number one, they saw a tribulation time. Number two, they saw a herald, a, a forerunner. And then number three, the coming of Messiah himself, who would be the great king. This tremendous divine figure who would come at the end of the present age and he would establish the age of glory. He would establish the kingdom and he would vindicate the people of God. Number four, the next thing they see in their eschatology, now this is all coming from uh, Shura, remember that book that he wrote, is that the nations would ally themselves and gather to fight against the Messiah when he came. Uh, in the Sibylline Oracles, I want to quote here. We read this Jewish teaching from the Sibylline Oracles. Here it goes, quote, The kings of the nations shall throw themselves against this land that is the land of promise, bringing retribution on themselves. They shall seek to ravage the shrine of the mighty God and of the noblest men whensoever they come to the land. In a ring around the city, the accursed king shall place each one, uh, shall place each one his throne with his infidel people by him. And then with a mighty voice, God shall speak unto all of the undisciplined, empty-minded people and judgment shall come upon them from the mighty God and all of they shall all perish at the hand of the eternal one. Now he brings in a brief mention of the one that we know as Antichrist. So he sees the nations gathered in the, in the teaching of the Jews in that time, the nations would be gathered to fight the Messiah. Uh, their belief, the Jewish belief at the time of Christ, uh, is exactly what the Bible teaches. And really, you, you almost think you're reading the book of the Revelation when you see a lot of this stuff. Fifth thing that sure talks about how they believe, what they believed. They taught in their eschatology that it is that result of that battle against the Messiah that would bring the total destruction of these nations. Uh, Philo said, quote, Messiah will take the field and make war and destroy great and populous nations, close quote. Fourth Ezra, quote, he shall, Messiah, shall reprove them for their ungodliness, rebuke them for their unrighteousness, reproach them to their faces with their treacheries, and when he has rebuked them, he will destroy them. In the book of Enoch, quote, 
It will come to pass in those days that none shall be saved, either by gold or by silver. None shall be able to escape. There shall be no iron for war. No one can clothe himself with a breastplate. Bronze shall be of no service, and tin, T-I-N, shall not be esteemed, and lead shall not be desired, and all the things shall be destroyed from the service of the earth. In other words, Messiah will come and destroy all the hostile nations, and regardless of how they've armed themselves, all of their armor will be meaningless. And he goes through here in his day uh, the finest material that could be used uh, to, make, uh, to make their armor. So they saw a, a tribulation coming with Messiah coming, having been announced by his forerunner. And he would fight the nations and he would defeat them utterly. This was what they believed. This is what these disciples believed. Well, it's pretty much what I believe, right? Mm -hmm. The book of Enoch, and this is number six. The sixth thing that Shura points out. They believed that after that great fight, that battle, and the destruction of those nations would be the renovation of Jerusalem. In Enoch, the book of Enoch, quote, all the pillars were new and the ornaments larger than those of the first Jerusalem, as it were. So that's close quote. So they saw the renovation of the whole city of Jerusalem. Now you get that from Ezekiel. You can get that from the last couple of three chapters of Ezekiel. And uh, it's, a, it's pointed out that it's a promise, even to this day, a, 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 a prominent thing that Jewish, Jews pray daily in part reads like this lift up a banner to gather our dispersed and assemble us from the four ends of the earth and that's part of daily Jewish prayer every day so they look for a day when Messiah comes defeats all these nations renovates Jerusalem and regathers Jews the nation of Israel really from all around the world they see God is collecting everybody and bringing them back to a glorified Jerusalem. This was a dream they had. This was, this was the ultimate. This was, this was what they held dearest in their hearts. They understood the Old Testament prophets the same way we do. That's what we understand. That's what we get here. They understood the Old Testament prophets the way that we do. They saw the same sequence that we see when it comes to the consummation of the age. And then number eight. After that, they believed that Palestine would become the center of the world. So, Jews in the time of Jesus, which was an influence on the minds of the disciples, goes like this. A time of tribulation, great difficulty, unprecedented in world history. A time during that time when a herald would come to announce the forerunner would come to announce the Messiah. Then, come the, then would come the Messiah himself. And then all the nations of the earth would gather together to fight against him and he would destroy them. Then he would purify the city of Jerusalem and then gather together Jews from all over the world and establish his, uh, his, his eternal kingdom. 
Now, this was the eschatology of the disciples. Following what they were thinking, okay, they would have thought that the Jews had been under tribulation for a long time. They would see that tribulation really extending back and beginning, even back in the times of Persians and Greeks and into the time of Rome. They saw Roman oppression literally as the time of their difficulty or, or their tribulation. And so all of these come together just as when John the Baptist shows up. And what does he do? He announces the coming of the Messiah. And then who steps into the scene? Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Jesus do? He demonstrates amazing power to thousands and thousands and thousands of people over a period of three years. Amazing power. Raise the dead. Feed the multitudes. Stop the storm. Heal the sick. Never stopped during those three years. But what's the difference between then and now? They overlooked that portion of Scripture in the Old Testament that prophesied the suffering servant. Who doesn't want the king? We want the king. But it's difficult for us to see our hero taken by what we thought were his enemies and ignominiously nailed to a cross in shame and defeat. That's something that was very difficult. They didn't see their need of a sacrifice from the Lamb of God. So this is what's, this is what's in the minds of the disciples when we come to chapter 24. What Christ had said previously about things, even about his death and resurrection... It just didn't register. It didn't register at all with them. That just wasn't how, how their eschatology was, how their doctrine was. Uh, and it probably could be said that this is how Judas locked into all of this. But I don't think he really believed in the Christ. But I think he saw an advantage, and he believed like the other disciples, that they were about to go into the kingdom. They were about to see Jesus really kick some rear end and establish the kingdom and put the Gentiles under the power uh, of and, and establish this great kingdom. They were, I think this is probably where he was. He saw, he saw something that would really be advantageous to him. Because Here's why. Because when you come, all right, we're going to be in chapters 24 and 25. When you come to Matthew 26, uh, this is where Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says this in chapter 26, after two days is the feast of the Passover. And I say to you, the son of man is betrayed to be crucified. And he says that after all that he teaches in Matthew 24 and 25. Now to set this, set this up, I want us to go back into uh, Matthew because Matthew 23 it just leads right into Matthew 24 so let's look at this if you will um, I can't do the whole chapter but I'll let me see 
maybe uh, let's see. Okay, I'll start. I'll start with verse thirty-six. These these are in. If you had a red letter, it's a red letter edition. It's Jesus talking. Truly, I say. Now, this is the last sermon that Jesus will give openly. This is his last public teaching. After that, it's all just him and his disciples. But then three days later, two and a half, three days later, he's on the cross. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now he's about to leave the temple. He's on the outside of the temple when they talk to him about how magnificent the temple is in Matthew 24. Going to be left to you desolate. For I say to you, and he's speaking to the nation of Israel, really. From now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that leads you right into Matthew 24, okay? Which is what our study is. Now I hope that you have a, what time is it? It is 10 to well, 8 here, 10 to 8 here. Well, when y'all start bobbing off, let's take about five minutes. For those of you who want to read the book that I have just quoted so vociferously here, <laughs> the author's name is Emil Schur, E-M-I-L. S-H-U-R-E-R. -E and the title, actually, I think it's more than one volume. It's, it's a rather lengthy work. But the title of his book is A History of the Jewish People in the Time of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's, where, um, that's where that all those quotes and so forth came from. All right, now then let me... Um, let's see alright alright so now we, we even before the discourse begins uh, we should have we should have an idea of what the disciples thought with regard to the end of time. They still think, you know, hey, he, he's gonna, he is going to come in here on a white horse and there are going to be so many people from all over the world and this is going to be such, such fun to watch him destroy the nations and so forth. That's, that's how they thought. They, they, they thought it was Armageddon before Armageddon. They thought it was, you know, it was time to bring all the end. Fourth, the end of time, fourth, into uh, into the time that they were uh, in the time of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. Jesus has just pronounced final judgment on the nation of Israel. Check. Right? Jesus has just said that the temple was left to them desolate. Abomination of desolation. Check. Right? 
Uh, I mean, I could go on and on with this checklist. We've we've gone through all these things. So here comes now Matthew twenty four. They come outside the temple. They've been walking in the temple when and heard Jesus say, "Your house is left to you desolate." Now notice the language. You should always notice the language in everything. He said, your house. Jesus did not say, my house. And at that point in time, he did not say, my father's house. He has called it that one before, but not now. Because when Jesus walks out of the temple, having pronounced judgment on Israel, God leaves the temple. It's Ichabod all over again, all right? God leaves the temple. So their house, their temple is left to them desolate. It's meaningless. It's nothing. Um, it's been abandoned, desolate. The, the Greek word means abandoned to absolute ruin. So God has left, and the building is more or less cursed. It's devoted to ruin. And he says, you won't see me again until you see me in the glory of Messiah. When you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because that's a Messiah proclamation. You won't see me again until you see me like that. Now get an idea of the temple. I'm sure you've studied this before, but the temple was on top of a mountain that just rose up above everything else. It was sitting in all of its glory, huge, massive temple. It sparkled. The, the things it was made of, the stones that were used and so forth, the thing literally sparkled. It had a tremendous wall that surrounded it. It was a massive thing, almost like a, a, a castle or a fortress or something. Um, Mark 13 and verse 3 in a, in a parallel passage talks about how they mentioned the great buildings that were there. And then in Luke 21, Luke adds to this discourse here that the buildings were adorned with all of the offerings that people had brought. Now, these were wealthy treasures uh, that were placed all around. So the place was filled with treasure. Uh, Tacitus, the historian, said that uh, it was a place of immense wealth, uh, treasures that had been collected and accumulated from Jews who brought them there from all over the world. Now, Herod, the king, of course, started the building project. And these huge stones that were laid as the lower part, kind of the foundation, some of them measured 40 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet. One at least actually measured 85 feet long. It was a single stone. And they weighed hundreds of tons. It's... You know, there's a big question on how how are that with with whatever they whatever engineering whatever they had in the day of the of the uh, pyramids. You know, how did they get those rocks all here? Well, the same question would be asked about the temple. Uh, but even a deeper question is: Jesus walks out having just said, "Your house is left to you desolate, absolute ruin." The strong implication meaning that it's going to be flattened. Nothing will be left of it. And so they're, they're wondering, how can this happen? Because of the size of the stones and so forth. 
Now, so that gives us verse 1, Matthew 24. And coming out from the temple, Jesus was going along and his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. So it's almost like they're saying, you might want to rethink all that. You know, this is, this is a pretty big place. Uh, and they're, they're just, they're just, they're proud of the, te- they're just like any other G. They're very proud of the temple and all that, uh, all that has been done there. Which goes into verse two. And he answered and said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. There are three things here, three parts here. When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Anyone who looked at the temple in those days just couldn't see the possibility of it, of it being torn down. Now, understand this. Jesus does not reference the coming of the Romans to tear the temple down. That's not part of the question they asked. The question they asked had to deal with the tribulation. They didn't understand it like that. It had to deal with the 70th week of Daniel. When Rome came and tore down Jerusalem, well, that was in the time of the church. That, that's not part of the seven, 70th, seven-year period. So it, it, uh, it didn't apply to the question that he was answering. We're on purely Jewish ground here, okay? This is, this is Jewish ground. This is, this is speaking of events that uh, when they happen... <laughs> don't happen to the church. They happen to Israel. So he's, he has pronounced judgment upon Israel. That brings their disciples, these disciples together. And then some would ask him privately, uh, how is this going to happen? Josephus said that the temple was leveled to the ground to a degree that you would never know if you visited there that anybody ever inhabited the place. The Romans tore the whole thing down. The Middle East in general and Jerusalem in particular was still a hot spot. It was still a problem to the Gentiles. And the Romans had all of the, all of that trouble they were going to have. And they brought in a tremendous force and literally with all the power they could bring to bear, tore that thing down, even the great stones. They, they had ways to take them off one from another and effectively, effectively laid that thing waste. So then verse 3, Peter, James, John, and Andrew approached the Lord. That's what Mark tells us. And that verse 3, uh, they asked privately. So there's no more public ministry here. The public ministry of Jesus is over. All the teaching and ministry now is for his uh, disciples. Uh, so this, they come privately and they say, when shall these things be? The sign of your coming, the end of the age and so forth. They don't see any space. Now, I want you to look at this. 
If you look at uh, verse 3, they don't see any space between uh, the sign of His coming and the end of the age. They don't, they don't see that. They don't see any of that. And it won't be until after really the resurrection. And even after the resurrection, it still will take 40 days of instruction for these disciples to get a grip on what Jesus the doctrine of the Christ really is. It involves two, the first coming, it involves the close of the 69th, 70-year period. And then it involves a space of time. And then it involves the final 70th, seven-year period. They can't understand the space of time. And it, the same thing goes true with the Old Testament prophets. You can read a prophet in the Old Testament and he will move right from, um, from a suffering Christ into the glory of Christ, the King, the King Christ, you know. He couldn't understand back then. I, I had a seminary professor tell me it's like looking at mountain peaks. And I sort of understood when I was in Switzerland many, many, many years ago and rode that cogwheel, whatever it is, thing up to this top. It was summertime, but it was snowing. It was cold up there. And you look out, and in the Alps, there are snow peaks, and you see the peaks, but you have no idea what's between the peaks. You don't know what's down there. It, it could have been just right there, or it could be way over there. You couldn't really tell. That was the, that's the description that my seminary professor made when he spoke of Old Testament prophets. They were considering the Christ. They had visions, but they had no way. It was a mystery to them. They had no way of knowing what was between the two peaks of the coming of Christ and the glorious return of Christ. They had no idea. Still the same problem here as they, uh, as they ask, ask the question. As a matter of fact, they are still struggling with it after the resurrection. You, you read Acts chapter 1, and, and what was the, one of the first questions? Well, okay, you died, you got up, now... Will you restore the kingdom? <laughs> See, they still don't have it. They still don't understand. It's really, literally, literally going to, you know, just take the coming of the Holy Spirit. Will, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Luke 19 points out the same thing in uh, verse 11 to quote that verse. And as they heard these things, he added and spoke a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. That's in Luke 19. So Christ, of course, has to die for our sins. He has to pay the ransom for his own. He has to, he has to pay for our redemption. Otherwise, we'll never be redeemed. And they just so, in a cavalier fashion, just every time Jesus says, I'm going to die, They're, my enemies are going to crucify me. They just don't even, you know, but I'll get up again. I'll, they're just, well, you know, okay. Uh, they, 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 can't, they can't process that at this point in their minds. So the whole point of this sermon, this discourse, really, uh, is for, for Christ to simply say, you know, say something like this. Hey, fellas, it ain't right now. It ain't going to happen right now. That's basically what the whole point 
of Matthew 24 and 25 is all about. You're, you're figuring wrong. Your, your theology is skewed. You have a lot of good understanding, but it's misplaced and displaced, and you're going to have to straighten it out. So they're talking, you think they're talking about the second coming, but they're really not because they don't even have a concept of the second coming. That's not even in their minds. Now, you and I look at that today, and it's a different kind of a story. But they didn't see a distinction, you know, between his coming here and then his coming in glory to be the king and so forth. And it was, as I said, it was the same way with, uh, with uh, Old Testament prophecies. Now, that uh, word, let me find it here. It's uh, translated coming, your coming. And the Greek word, it's kind of hard to see up there, parousias. It's from the word parousia. That's formed by two Greek words, para, and the verb to be. So it means uh, to be present, to be around, to be to be present. And what they're asking is, what is the sign of your full presence being here? Now, to them, the fullness of presence was the king of the kingdom who devastated the Gentile nations and who restores and renovates Jerusalem and regathers all of Israel from everywhere in the world and brings them back to Jerusalem. This is their idea of the being, of the full presence, to be around the full presence of the Christ. And this is their, this is their question. What's the sign of your full presence, of your complete presence, of your, of your being here? When it, maybe we can say it like this. When are you going to enter into the fullness of your presence as Messiah and give us all the good stuff, the glory and everything else? Now, it's, it's, a, it's a clear passage here. The, uh, he says, and of the consummation or the end of the age. The end, consummation. Centilius, That's uh, another big compound word. It comes from the word centilia to the full end, the final end. Tele means end. Uh, the compound telia with son means the full final end. Their question is, their question is not, you know, when are you going to rapture? So that's not the question. It has nothing to do with that. Their question is, when, um, when will you come at the, in the fullness of who you are at the complete end when there won't be anything else? The full and final era the full and final end of the age of man and you're in your fullness and presence and all when now that's what they're so that's the question he's going to answer he's going to answer specifically and it's going to be a big reference to those 
to those seven years, those those final seven years of uh, the 70 weeks, so-called the 70 weeks of uh, of Daniel. That phrase is used several times in the New Testament, and it's always used at the end of the age. Uh, when the Lord comes, it's used in one of the parables about how he throws a net out, catches fish, pulls them in, all kinds of all sorts. And he, he, he then, you know, just divides them as the end of the age. And so for, there's several places I won't get too deep into that. So the Lord's answer begins in verse four. He is answering their question that has to do with the full presence, the full coming of the Christ at the end of man's age. That is the specific question. And that's the question he answers. He won't say anything about the destruction of Jerusalem because it doesn't apply. That uh, is an answer to a question that's not asked. That's, that's another thing entirely that's outside uh, that's outside of what the Olivet Discourse is all about uh, the judgment on Jerusalem was for that period of history upon an unregenerate upon a Christ rejecting generation after Christ had declared judgment upon Israel and of course the dispersion and all these kind of things but that is not relevant to the question that they ask here that's not relevant to the question they ask here so then he goes on and he begins to enumerate things that have to do with uh, with that particular uh, the, the fullness of the Christ. Now, what he says is 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 just really you just have to pay close attention to everything. Jesus answered and said to them, "See to it that no one." Deceives you, misleads you. Um, many will come, deceive many, saying, I am the Christ, and so forth and so on. Now, he, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go back to Matthew 23 again, but we have to keep that in mind what he has just said inside the temple and he comes out because that was the last public speech he ever gave to the people of Israel. And that sermon, those words were words of judgment. It was not a word of appeal at that point in time. And he doesn't preach another sermon after that one uh, in his time on earth. Uh, so his judgment came in the form of these uh, direct statements in form of parables and and then he really denounced the false leaders uh, in a horrific way and told them finally your house left to you desolate a pronouncement of judgment so now Christ will begin to answer their question and explain to them 
that there is a whole lot of future yet to come. And he will, he will give an overview of what will be uh, in, that, in, that, uh, in that future. Now he warns them about false Christs. Many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ. They will deceive many. Um, and this is a really a, something that dominates the age, you know, uh, until that seven-year period comes along. Counterfeit Christianity, counterfeit Christs, cults, uh, and it all centers on the doctrine of Christ. What is your doctrine of Christ? Is He God in the flesh? This will, this will separate true Christianity from everything else. If there is a big group of people, but they do not say that Christ is God in the flesh, if they can't say that it's false, it's false Christianity. It's not true. Uh, it's simply not true. Um, there are many. There are false ways that oppose the way of Christ, uh, disguised as politics, human social works, brotherly love. Any offer of peace without an appeal to God for forgiveness is counterfeit. It's it all it's all false. It's deception. Christ here then, what time is it? It's 830. Here then, in verses four to fourteen, Christ will describe many of the signs of the coming of the Christ to answer their question. When he comes in the fullness of his presence, when he comes in the fullness of who he really is, when he comes at the end of the age. Now, I want to take that, the rest of this through verse 14, I want to take that in an unbroken string of things, and I'm not really going to be able to do that tonight, so I'm going to stop here. Uh, with where we are and pick up there um, tomorrow morning and see how far we can roll right through uh, the rest of Matthew 24. All right, so uh, thank you for showing up. All right, let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Enrich our lives as we study it together. In Jesus' name, amen.